Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you for downloading the Talk Politics podcast. This week I'm joined for the entire show by Gloria De Piero, former Labour MP for Ashfield. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio. With The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. We are joined on the line by Conservative MP and Vice Chair of the Conservative Party, Andrew Bowie. Uh, welcome to the show and thank you for giving us your time. No, good morning. Uh, good morning. Um, I need to uh, uh, draw your attention to a follow-up article by the Insight team in the Sunday Times. Um, this uh, refers to the claims that were, well, actually the facts that were revealed last week about the Prime Minister uh, missing uh, five COBRA meetings and uh, attending his first COBRA meeting on March the second after there'd been Cobra meetings in throughout February and in January. Um, number 10 have come out um, trying to explain his absence and saying that um, it's not unusual. Prime Ministers have not been present uh, in all Cobra meetings. But in the rebuttal from the Insight team, we, we kind of understand that that's not true. A Cobra meeting is only called for a national emergency. And if the Prime Minister is available and in London, um, then he should be attending. What is your view on that? Should the Prime Minister have been there at those five meetings? Well, look, I mean, the, this was dealt with, uh, I think it was last Sunday. The number 10 uh, outlined its uh, rebuttal to 
uh, the Sunday Times Insight article and uh, made clear as to why the Prime Minister didn't attend those meetings. And in fact, it was entirely normal for the relevant Secretary of State to be chairing um, the COBRA meeting. COBRA, of course, just stands for Cabinet uh, Office Briefing Room A. Uh, and yes, the meetings are only ever called there if there is uh, an emergency or there is important matters to be discussed relating to national security or otherwise. But it's entirely normal for uh, the Secretary of State responsible for whatever department's in the lead to be chairing that meeting. The Prime Minister's kept informed through briefings and updates every minute of every day. And it's um, entirely possible that the Prime Minister had much and entirely more important things on than what was being discussed in the meeting and would be kept up to date and kept informed of any decisions or discussions or information that was actually brought up at the meeting. And of course, ultimately, the Prime Minister is always the one that's in charge and taking the decision. Uh, I was going to ask you about a James Forsyth column in The Spectator um, where he says, uh, he's, he's quoting a minister who tells him that two-thirds of the Cabinet favour a significant easing of the lockdown at the next review in under three weeks' time. Do, do you recognise mm-hmm. those figures? Well, I mean, um, obviously James Forsyth seems to have better uh, sources within the Cabinet than, than I do. I'm not privy, and now there's anybody else really unless you're around the table, to discussions that go on in the Cabinet room. Um, it's, it's obviously for government, for Cabinet to decide how we uh, end this lockdown, how we move to the next stage in terms of fighting coronavirus, getting the economy back up and running again, getting people back to work. Um, but I don't think it's helpful at this stage for us to be uh, throwing around supposition and, and, you know, sort of trying to second guess the decisions that might be coming down the line. Um, as I keep saying, and I'm afraid it's going to sound incredibly boring, what we need to be doing right now is still focusing on, on making sure this lockdown continues um, and making sure that the people uh, adhere to the guidelines that we've set out. There will be discussions, of course, going on in government about how and when we, we, we move to the next phase and how and when we, we end the lockdown. But, you know, that's, that's not for... for um, we just need to be focused on making sure the lockdown does continue. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. I'm delighted to say that Ed Vasey, former Minister for Culture, Media and Sport and former Conservative MP, joins us on the line. Ed, uh, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to wait. I'm enjoying listening. <laughs> Bless you for saying so. Charmer, um, what a charmer! It's always a charmer. I just realised, of course, that you guys aren't in the studio. I kept thinking, why is it my fault that Alexis's line seems so uh, tenuous? But uh, it's because yours broadcasting from home as well. We're all, everyone, we we're spread all over the country, Ed. Uh, <laughs> the, the new broadcasting, very, very strange uh, not to be in the studio looking at people, and it makes a huge difference. But anyway, we persevere. Um, Ed, I. <sighs> We're hearing reports of of all these rifts within uh, the Conservative Party. I mean, some may, people may say, hey, what's new? Uh, but um, right now, Boris Johnson's due to come back tomorrow. And glad we are that he has fully recovered and he's, he's able to come back to work. How much discontent is he going to be dealing with tomorrow morning? Is there really... Um, a faction of the Conservative Party, as we are led to believe, that are demanding the lockdown be lifted because they're inundated with letters from SMEs and businesses saying, look, this cannot carry on for much longer. We are uh, struggling here. You've got to lift the lockdown. So I talked to uh, quite a few government ministers and MPs, uh, partly because obviously I'm suffering acute uh, withdrawal symptoms having stopped being an MP in December. I don't think there is a... 
split per se. In fact, certainly I think at the top of government, it's um, actually quite harmonious. I think the quad, as it were, of um, Dominic Raab and Michael Gove and Rishi Sunak and Matt Hancock is working uh, pretty well. So I don't think there's this kind of split between people who want lockdown to continue and people who want it to end. Although I do think people's perspectives are influenced by their jobs. So Matt Hancock's probably more pro-lockdown because he's coming from how do I make sure the NHS is working and others like Michael Gove are more pro-easing the lockdown because they're looking from a more business perspective. But I think that clearly lockdown is going to be the issue now. Uh, for the next week or so, uh, backbench MPs, perfectly entitled to do so, are going to say, look, is this really sensible not to have a strategy? There have been some pretty strong comments. I mean, to have a Tory MP endorse uh, the SNP for uh, Nicola Sturgeon for coming out with a plan to end lockdown is, is pretty uh, strong stuff. But I'm, I have a lot of sympathy with them. I think uh, the government does need to come out with a programme of how it's going to end lockdown. I don't think what Andrew Bowie was saying earlier about we can't discuss easing lockdown because we don't want to send mixed messages is the right approach. I think people need hope. They're going to see France and Spain uh, easing lockdown uh, in the middle of May, and people are going to ask what's happening with us. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. Our next guest, uh, Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Morning, Bridget. Good morning. Uh, so today, uh, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has written to the Prime Minister. He says the British public have made great sacrifices uh, during the, to make the lockdown work. They deserve to be part of an adult conversation about what comes next. He says this is necessary now. Bridget, I mean, the, the polls show that the overwhelming uh, number of uh, people support the lockdown don't want it to end isn't this a bit premature i mean the british people have been remarkable in the sacrifices that they've been willing to make in order to protect lives at this time but the lockdown won't last forever we know that there will have to be um a return to life as you know as normal it won't go back to how it was before there will have to be careful consideration around what that will Involve, But I think if we are to maintain public support for the necessary measures the government has taken, then I think we need to have a conversation around the action that will be necessary in order for us to come through this and for the government to plan, for example, around testing. We know that testing isn't working well at the moment, but large scale community testing is likely to be a part of any exit strategy. So we need to make sure the government have got the resources they need in the right areas uh, so that we can emerge from this as a country. And, uh, of course, your brief is an economic one. Do you think more things, more shops uh, could be open now to support our high streets? I think ministers do have to look very carefully at the evidence and be led as best as they can by the science that's there. We've supported the government to take these necessary steps, but we know that for many businesses... It's an incredibly difficult time. They aren't getting access to the cash that they need. The government's lending schemes that have been established are not working as well as they might. And far too few businesses have been able to get the kind of support 
that they need. We've also seen lots of workers who've had to be furloughed, um, but unfortunately some workers fall outside um, of those schemes. And it's an incredibly challenging time, but I don't believe it should be a trade-off between the health of our nation and the economy. But if we're to prevent a much longer and deeper recession, then the government will need to continue to look at the measures it will need to take if we are to emerge from this and in planning for the exit strategy. If you were in charge of the Treasury right now, would you say to companies that are based in in, uh, tax havens uh, right now, UK tax havens, some of them, would you say to them, I'm sorry, but you can't partake in uh, taking money out of a purse that you don't contribute to? A a simple yes or no might be be easier for the listeners to understand on this one. But we wouldn't have designed the schemes in the way the government has designed the schemes. And other countries have taken measures uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. So, yes, absolutely, a Labour government would have looked very carefully and differently at the choices that need to be made. But at a time of national crisis, we did support the government to put in place action to protect workers and to keep businesses afloat. But, of course, there are areas where we would have done things differently. And that is one area where I believe other countries have adopted a different approach uh, that that will continue to protect uh, protect the kind of income that workers need, but also represents a fair deal for the taxpayer too. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio. With The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Um, tell us about this website, Pick for Britain. Uh, you're trying to recruit thousands of British farm workers for the oncoming harvest. How many are you looking for? Well, the, the, the numbers required through the, through the season is around 80,000. And this website's been set up by the government to try and match um, you know, those that are looking for work with um, farmers that, that require um, um, help in the fields um, and in their warehouses, which would historically have come from overseas. But obviously, because of COVID, people aren't able to travel. Now, we know that um, there was uh, a couple of flights scheduled. One did arrive. I believe the rest have arrived as well. But the more to come of uh, uh, Romanian fruit pickers uh, who've been flown in especially. Why, uh, why have we needed people to be flown in from Romania? Has this website not been up long enough? And there not enough, um, is there not enough uptake from uh, British people who currently find themselves unemployed to do these jobs? Why do we need to ship people in? That's a good question. Um, This website, Pick for Britain, that the government has launched, that was uh, last week. Um, A lot of the agencies, private sector agencies that are trying to do recruiting have started a Feed feed the Nation campaign about four or five weeks ago because the the problem was evident quite some while ago. Um, though the people who were, came in, I believe, were going to a large uh, 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 lettuce um, salad salad uh, business um, 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 in the in the east of the country. They were predominantly, as far as I'm aware, people who have been coming back year in year out. So they would normally come. They just weren't able to travel the normal way. They would normally mm-hmm. get a bus, and you know, so they were. You know, they come every year to do the job. This issue has sprung up today, as you mentioned earlier, because the the uh, traditional seasonal workers that come and work have been unable to make the trip, or it's harder because of the pandemic. But this yep. isn't an issue that sprung up uh, overnight, and it's not an issue because of the pandemic. But traditionally, why has it been that 
British people do not seem to be interested in this seasonal work. You know, we hear it and we hear the rhetoric coming in from various corners of the media of British jobs for British people. Uh, we hear it very much about the NHS. We want to train our own doctors and nurses and not rely so much on uh, labour coming in from whether it is the EU or outside the EU. We keep hearing that all the time. Yeah, but it so, also applies so think, to this seasonal work. So what is it about this work that is unattractive to British workers? I think I'd say two things. It's not just British, so I don't think we should be, um, you know, sort of... Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a global thing. If you look at any first world country, um, whether it's America, whether it's, you know, American... You know, Americans don't pick their own uh, fruit and veg. It's typically migrant labour from Mexico. If you go to southern Spain, it'll be North Africa. If you go to Italy, if you go to Germany, France, Australia, most of these countries um, in, in recent years. Now, if you go back 20 or 30 years, students, people out of the towns would go out with their families and do these jobs. And you know, if you look back in history, that was very much a, you know, what people did. Um, but in recent years, pretty much you go to any first world country. Um, and that's what you're that's that's the evidence you'll see. You know, if you've this shortage of labor through this because of COVID is being replicated across Europe. I read a fascinating article in the Wall Street Journal this week. You know, France are looking for the Minister of Agriculture, you know, 200,000 people they require. Germany, 300,000. And in Italy... Sure, but, you know, but Mark, I, I appreciate that this is not unique to the UK. But mm -hmm. again, I, I hasten to go back to a rather sort of uh, banal comment of... Is it because it's not very well-paid work? It's very cheap labour. You say it requires skill. I think some people may argue with that, whether lettuce picking, yes, of course, it does require a know-how. Whether it can be described as a skill, I'm not sure. I've never done it, so I'll, I'll refer back to you. But is it at the end of the day because it's not very well-paid and it's very unsocial hours? Well, I think it's a combination. I mean, if you look back to, you know, prior to going into COVID-19, you ask about these type of jobs. You know, we, in this country, we had pretty full employment. So people will choose what they want to do. It is hard work, definitely. Yeah. Um, there's no, no question about it. You know, um, long hours, um, you know, they, they work very hard. And they, uh, you know, it, it depends what you're, what you're benchmarking against as to whether it's been to be, whether, that, whether or not, you know, eight, nine pounds an hour is... is, is is, is not enough you know if you if you're doing well you can earn up to 12 15, 12, 15 pounds um because you know the skill comes in the speed and the ability to do the job um effectively so and the other issue i think long term is around mechanization you know this industry over time will need to to mechanize more but it's a, that is a slow process you know you have seen increased mechanization and that will come with time um but I think the government's view that sort of mechanization and technology is the solution to everything. Um, it's a solution to lots of things, but there's certain, you know, picking the right um, bit of fruit on the right day is, you know, we're still some way off machines being able to do that. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. I have uh, Gloria De Piero, former Labour MP. And uh, we are joined on the line by Alistair Smith, who's editor at The Stage, publication covering uh, theatre and the performing arts. Uh, Alistair, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Uh, I can imagine, and uh, well, 
I can't imagine. I know from from friends uh, who are in the theatre that uh, the performing arts world and the theatres are taking an absolute battering at the moment. Um, tell us a little bit more about what's going on and then we can also perhaps talk about some of the initiatives to raise money that uh, are being planned at the moment. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as I'm sure uh, you know and, and most people know, um, theatres closed um, on March the 16th. Um, they That was shortly after the speech that, uh, that Boris Johnson gave uh, advising people not to go to uh, theatres, restaurants uh, and bars. Um, the theatre industry took a sort of a unilateral decision to uh, to, to shut everything after that advice. Um, and all theatres have remained closed since. Um, and that obviously uh, is going to carry on for the foreseeable future, which means that anyone who works in theatre um, is, uh, you know, has either been furloughed, uh, a, a large proportion of the industry has been furloughed, um, or are trying to either uh, screen and stream online shows that have been created before, um, sometimes for free, sometimes as uh, sort of charity initiatives to raise money, um, either for the NHS or, or for the industry itself, um, or they're trying to create new work in in you know, extremely difficult circumstances. I mean, I, th- I think the thing that's worth what is worth saying is obviously, while theatre has been very badly hit, I think everyone within the industry understands that it's by no means the only sector that's been extremely of badly course. hit. I think there are three phases to to this for for theatre. The first was about, I mean, just about survival. Um, the second has been about trying to carry on creating work during during the lockdown, and then the third is is how how does it return to some some form of normality? How does it open up again? And I think people are just starting to think about the third one because especially that first one of survival has been has been so difficult and carries on being difficult. So I think um, I think the problem at the moment is that nobody knows uh, when. Uh, even with social distancing measures, theatres might be able to, uh, to to open up. So, uh, you know, people are talking about about what might happen, whether you could shift smaller shows into bigger theatres and play at reduced capacities. But of course, the problem is, you know, theatres are expensive to run. Um, and a lot of shows would, you know, say you had to reduce to 50% capacity, um, you couldn't afford to run that show at 50% yeah, capacity. Would, you wouldn't it, be bringing it, in it, enough money to, to, to even pay for the building, possibly. Exactly. And I think just even even if you get beyond that, especially in somewhere like the West End, there are issues around um, things like toilets and bars and foyers. So it's not just about the auditorium and then and then backstage as well. You know, often often the backstage conditions are quite cramped. So, uh, you know, are actors going to be able to same number of actors going to be able to share a, a small dressing room? I think it's it's probably unlikely. So it, it's Absolutely, people are thinking about it and will need to come up with inventive solutions. Um, but but I don't think it's going to be straightforward. Um, and I think uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to to work out. It, it's, it's not like football where the main income stream would be from, from TV. But yeah, you can it's still going- get money in if you televise it in an empty stadium. Thank you for downloading this podcast. A reminder, you can listen to Talk Politics live every Sunday between 10 and 1 p.m. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.